And I think it can be really scary if it's not fully formed and you're not sure how it will develop, but you just have to take a step towards something. You just have to take action. Taking the risk and like putting yourself out there opens up the world to you. Take a step and the, the path will appear. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Welcome back to the Out of Hours podcast. It's great to be back. And we are joined by some incredible people this series. They've all started projects on the side and they've all grown them into something much bigger. They are different types of projects and businesses, but they've all started from a conviction that this thing should exist in the world. They're all people who seem to follow their curiosity, question the status quo, and do things a bit differently. And today's guest is no exception. We are joined today by El Huerta, founder and CEO of the app Mend, designed to help you heal from both breakups and work-induced burnout. If you've ever suffered from a particularly bad breakup and found yourself Googling late at night to find answers, you will likely relate with El's story. Following a late-night Google search after a particularly bad breakup, she found herself wondering if there was a better way to help people go through the pain of breakups and heal faster. The great thing about Elle's story is that it isn't linear. Elle left Google, where she was working at the time, to follow some passions that she had neglected. She started doing an apprenticeship at a bakery and she did some startup consultancy, all whilst building Mend as a newsletter. Mend is now the app to help you heal from breakups and burnout, and it's since been featured in countless press, from the New York Times to Vogue, and has also been featured in Apple's App of the Year. Elle has been mentored by Jessica Alba. She's raised over $2 million in venture capital, only to move away from the venture path and focus on profitability. We talk about letting go of achievement-based goals, how to build a successful app that isn't addictive, her experience raising venture capital, why breakups are so bad, and the life-changing impact of a digital detox. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Very, very excited to have you. And there's a few reasons why I'm excited to have you on the podcast. And the first one is I actually came across Mend right when you were at the beginning of starting it. Relationships form our stability, our security, the space to kind of explore and, and, and be free, our sense of self, you know, they are so fundamental and, and it doesn't get the respect it deserves as a space because I think it's dismissed because it's romantic as something that's whimsical. 
The other reason that I thought it'd be great to speak to you is because I know that MEND is now not just about relationships, and it's now also about burnout. For anyone who hasn't come across MEND, how would you describe what it does? MEND is really, it's a friend to help you through difficult times. And that's really what our mission is, to provide the most compassionate support possible, but also to give you science-backed information to help you along your way. That was really important to me. And that's what I felt was missing, sort of this marriage of the compassionate support, sort of the cheerleader that you need to get through those really difficult moments, like a breakup or like a period of burnout, but also evidence-based strategies. And I think it's really the combination of those that has led to our, our success all these years is you know, people come to us because they feel that they can really trust us. They feel that we do really care about their well-being, which is true. And they also know that we are trying to provide the, you know, the most up-to-date advice. And it's a program, right? So people join when they are going through either a breakup or a bout of burnout. Talk, talk us through a bit more kind of how, how it actually works. It's sort of like a personal trainer. That's the best way to describe it. And it's, it's an app. Uh, so we have an iOS app. We also have a web app. The core of it are audio trainings every day that you listen to. So they're personalized to you. So you listen to an audio training every day. They're created by mental health and wellness experts. We sort of build in these habits every day of checking in on your mood and journaling. We have a really incredible community now, over 210 countries and territories. So this incredible group of people who you know, they're going through the same thing. They ask each other advice, they share stories. And that's, I think, one of the most beautiful things that has come out of MEND is just building those connections. You know, as techie as we have become, MEND started with me sharing my own story in a newsletter. So at the end of the day, I feel like that's what is also still very core. Let's talk about those early days. You went through a particularly unpleasant breakup. Yeah, it was a, a very difficult breakup uh, in my 20s. It was, you know, one of the first breakups, I think, where you really think that maybe you were going to end up with this person. And now, you know, so many years later, I mean, I'm married now and I'm in my almost mid-30s. And so I look back at that and I realize how much more time I had and how many relationships uh, were yet to unfold. But at that time, you feel like, that was the one. And, you know, you're trying desperately to figure out why it didn't work. And then it was sort of compounded with the unraveling of my own family unit because my parents were getting divorced. So I was really experiencing, you know, the heartbreak of my family breaking up, trying to support a very heartbroken parent, trying to get through my own breakup. And it was just too heavy to carry by myself. That was what led me to this kind of late night moment that really was the beginning of MEND. It was like two or three in the morning and I just couldn't sleep, which I think is very common for most people going through a, you know, a difficult time, especially breakups. And I was on my phone and was just searching for anything, you know, anything that would help me. I mean, I remember clicking on PDFs on how to get your ex back. I mean, just the worst, you know, scum of the, <laughs> of the internet world. And that was the moment where I realized like, wow, if I am here doing this right now, there are so many other people who are in the same boat and there has to be a better 
way to go about this. So I guess you were doing a lot of Googling. <laughs> Did you seek out a therapist or a support group? I guess most people throw themselves into lots of hobbies as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I was at just all of the above. <laughs> just giving <laughs> a checklist and I was checking all of the boxes. Yeah, I really became like a professional at trying to to get through that breakup. And I think at the at the core of it, you know, my background was in science and my dad is a scientist. And so there was a part of me that was really driven to understand why I felt the way that I did because I felt so unhinged. And in every other aspect of my life, I felt, you know, like I knew what I was doing and I had control over myself. But, you know, all of a sudden I could tell that I, I had just changed. And so I wanted to understand what that was about. And sure enough, you know, when I was really reading through the research papers and I wasn't just reading blogs, I was really going to like the primary research and pouring over these journal articles myself. It was almost like being back in university, but I really began to learn how significant the, you know, physiological changes are, how significant the neurochemical changes are. That sort of opened up this whole journey for me. So I began to experiment with different ways to impact my physiology, you know, and to kind of reverse the effects of, of heartbreak. And, and that was also really the beginning of when I started to dive into mindfulness. What do you think is so bad? Do you think it is the loss of control, especially when you are broken up with? Yeah, I mean, I do think a, a big part of it, and not to take away the romance of a relationship at all, but a big part of what you experience, like the symptoms that you experience and the obsessive thinking and, you know, feeling um, like your elevated heart rate and the, you know, obsession that you have to try to see them again, even if it's just, you know, going to their social media profile. I mean, all of that is rooted in science. And there are reasons why you feel that way. And, you know, it goes back to evolutionary theory and, you know, we evolved to, to mate. And so when this person who was our potential mate, even if we were just dating them casually, when that person all of a sudden disappears, especially if you didn't choose to stop seeing them, your body goes into overdrive, like trying to recover that relationship. Is this when you're still at Google, you go through this yes. horrible breakup? So you're sort of at one of the, if not the best company, especially at that time in the world, doing this high impact, quite intense job, going through this painful breakup. So you were going through all these kind of different self-soothing techniques. When did you start to kind of think, oh, there might be something in this that could help other people? Really, the night that I was talking about where I was searching and found myself reading all sorts of things that I would never, I mean, I would be so embarrassed to admit that I was reading. <laughs> that that night, I definitely had the idea. And I think, you know, even at Google, I didn't start Mend at Google, but I knew when I joined Google that I was an entrepreneur and that Google was sort of like a, you know, a rest stop, a wonderful rest stop. I mean, I owe so much of what I'm able to do now to the five years that I spent there. But I, I also knew that I was an entrepreneur at my core. It's like really in my blood, it's in my roots. And the moment that I had that kind of awakening moment late at night, I knew that there was something to mend. And I knew that there was probably a business there, but more than anything, I was following this curiosity that I, I felt. And it was for me, it was like a wonderful thing because it, it gave me 
something to really be passionate about outside of outside of work um, because work was really busy and it was you know always hectic and and stressful and so it was wonderful to have this other thing that I could really spend my attention on. I was also you know coming to the end of my time at Google maybe like my fourth year, I was really ready to move on. But there was part of me that was scared to let go of something that was so wonderful in so many ways. Like you mentioned, it was such a great place to work. I left to leave and just work on things that I found interesting. That was very vague. I remember to my manager at the time, to everyone that I worked with, it was vague to you know my friends and my family. And I think a lot of people thought I was crazy, but I was so burned out that I just needed to get off of the train that was just like moving forward. And I needed to work on projects that I had ignored. You were at Google, super burnt out. You've been there five years and then you decide to quit. I'm assuming you have some money saved up um, and you take some time out to kind of explore your interests, reset, become curious again. But then I guess at some point you ran out of money and you have to get a job and you were consulting for a startup, right? And then also working for a bakery when you started then. So I left Google and I had been saving money since I started. I mean, really, because I knew that I would eventually want to do something um, on my own from the very first day. And I left and then I remember I had this complete panic when I realized that I was no longer making uh, a salary. And I immediately started uh, consulting for startups and, uh, you know, found companies that I could do work for. But I was really careful that the work that I was doing didn't require too much of my brain. And I know that sounds strange, but I just felt like because I wanted to do so many different things, I couldn't give all of my energy to one thing in particular, like how I had been giving all of my energy to Google. So yeah, I was consulting for startups. I was uh, apprenticing at a bakery. I was taking a lot of classes actually, which I had been doing at Google as well, like in wireframing and rails. And for me, it was a way to continue covering my cost of living while I was working on projects of my own that weren't weren't generating any revenue. And even though I had savings, I still had this like primal fear of running out of money too quickly. And so that's what forced me into that mindset. It really emotionally helped me get through that period of floating and working on a lot of different things. My whole life, I had been on this path where I was just pushing myself forward, trying to achieve the next milestone, trying to do the best, be the best, like go to, you know, the best school and, and get the best internships and get the best job and get the promotion faster than anyone else. And, you know, that was Mm -hmm. really my mindset. And so my thinking in this period of my life was, you know, I have these passion projects that I haven't developed um, because, you know, they don't immediately make money or, you know, I won't get, you know, like a gold star for, for you know, apprenticing in a bakery or something. And I just wanted to give myself sort of the, the space to, to explore those. I love this because it's not straight cut, you know, 
Yeah. And it never is really. And I think the thing I'm particularly interested in that story is there's a lot to give up in terms of external perceptions of success, I could imagine. You've built this thing, you're at Google, you've got this great job. It's really scary, especially if you've kind of been conditioned to evaluate your life and your success based on external criteria. So I'm curious how you felt going into that kind of fuzzy unknown, doing lots of different things at the same time, and if it was difficult. It was. I mean, and I guess the caveat is, I remember when I left Google, I had just won an award, like we did team awards, and I just won an award for person most likely to start a startup in the next five years. And I remember when I was doing my exit survey, when I was leaving, and even when I was talking with colleagues, the story that I was telling people was sort of like, yeah, I'm leaving. I'm going to start like my own company. And I, so I was sort of hiding under this image of the like pretty story. But, you know, underneath there were all of these, I would say like nodes, you know, like um, spokes of a wheel that I had been interested in exploring my entire life. Like one of them was writing, one of them was was baking. Mend was a relatively new area of interest for me, but you know, really like exploring the science of relationships and the psychology of love and heartbreak and all of that. That period was God, it was there were so many moments that were very, very painful in that process of shedding this like achievement as your identity. And I'm so, so thankful that I did that. And it allowed me to truly explore what I was interested in and develop what I think are like my gifts. I think everyone has these innate gifts that they can develop. It was like the hardest decision, probably one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. But God, like once you're out of that, that pressure I don't know. It's just like, you're free, really like the weight is lifted. I mean, even now I can like physically feel the sensation of, I I remember feeling like, oh, I just like got off the treadmill and I didn't need to, you know, run on the treadmill anymore. I feel like there's kind of three fears there. The first is fear of financial loss. So a very real fear of, you know, loss of security. The second one is almost fear of reputational loss. You know, you've built up a lot of these kind of cultural shortcuts, you know, Google, you know, people recognize that or MIT or whatever. Um, But then I think the third one is actually the, the really kind of deep internal set you know redefining your own version of success which I think people are so alienated from because it's so hard for people who are listening to this and are thinking I would really love to actually just get in touch with the stuff that I want to do and define success on my own terms what were some kind of actual practical things that you did to tap Mm -hmm. into what you believed was success and also to tap into this or shed this idea that your sense of self is only correlated with achievement there were a couple things that I did that really, really helped me. And I don't remember if I read them in a book or if I was given advice. But one of the things that I did was I went back mentally into my childhood and even like my teenage years. And I tried to figure out what it was that I really loved to do. Um, And no surprise, those are the things that I love to do now. You know, Mend for me really started as a, yeah, it started as a writing project. Initially, it was a newsletter. Still, the the part of Mend that I love so much is the writing that I get to do around it. 
And, you know, when you go back and look at my childhood, I always loved to write. I always thought that I would be a writer. You know, the, the threads are definitely there. And so I, I definitely spent some time reflecting on those things. And then I also, I mean, this is very practical, but I remember I had a whiteboard in my room. And right before I left my job, I wrote down all the things that I was interested in doing that I never really explored because I either thought that, you know, it was silly or that I couldn't make money at doing those things. I did this exact thing. It's amazing. Yeah. Where is that from? Do you remember where you heard about doing that? I was trying to remember the same thing. I was like, did I Google this? But I think it's just like, when you sit down to it. Yeah. Cause you just think like, what, where am I getting in my own way kind of thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's so powerful. It's such a powerful practice. And, you know, I wrote down all those things and it was everything ranging from, you know, I loved to dance when I was younger. I danced really seriously until I was, you know, basically went to, to college and, um, and I missed dancing. And so one of the things that I did as soon as I left was I started I went to ballet every morning with like a bunch of, you know, 70 year old women in the mission in San Francisco. And it just brought me so much joy. And so I think the practical advice is you have to spend time with yourself. And the, and the only way that you can spend time with yourself is if you really give yourself the space to spend time with yourself. And if you really try to get still and, and get quiet. And, and so for me, the mindfulness practice that I had developed really beginning at Google and thanks to Google helped me to do that. It's so funny. I did exactly the same thing. And I remember forcing myself to do it for, I did it with a friend actually. Um, and I think the stuff right at the end of the list is always the most interesting because all the stuff at the right. beginning is the stuff that's on the top of your kind of, you know, I don't want to say consciousness, but kind of your, yeah. you know, your front of mind. And then as you kind of go deeper into it, you start to think, oh, actually, maybe I'd quite like to do this thing. Yeah. And it's helpful to ask yourself why things are on the list too. I remember, so like, why am I, why do I like that? And then you give an answer and it's, but why? And then you just have to continuously peel down the layers and figure out, you know, what is at the the foundation of that? Mm. And I I really do think just in society and a lot of times by our parents, we're not raised to, uh, to approach life in that way. Like we're very much raised to kind of follow this path of, you know, it's very like achievement oriented and goal oriented. And so I think it is helpful to, it doesn't matter how old you are, where you are in your career. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to make a big change, but I think it's really helpful to, to have that as a practice. One of the main reasons people shut down those things that they want to do is because they, as you say, come up with some of them as self limitations, and then other are actual like real barriers. Like I can't make a full time living from this, and that's why I love side right. projects because I'm like, you can do that just a, a bit and just see it doesn't have to be, and then maybe it'll turn into something. But you know, you'll never know unless you've tried it. Going on to men, so it started first as a newsletter, right? Yeah, so it started as a newsletter, and it was. I mean, I wrote it really in my apartment. Um, and it was very story based. So I was sharing my own experience and, you know, what I was learning. And then I also brought in experts. So I was connecting throughout this whole period. I was connecting with people who were, you know, studying this either as like researchers or 
you know, psychologists, wellness experts. I was trying to connect to all of these people and I would curate content like interviews and uh, it was really a mix of, yeah, a mix of stories and, and advice initially because I was so, I think, open and honest and because it just wasn't like lists of, you know, advice from random people. It was really rooted in this, this story. I think people wanted to come along for the ride when it eventually evolved into a website a year later, which I built myself. And then it evolved into an app. And that's more when it evolved into a business. But when it was the newsletter, it was, you know, me and like a MailChimp account. And part of the reason I started as a newsletter too, which I think is helpful to point out for people who are starting side projects, I didn't have any money to spend on it, really. Like I had money to support myself, which I worked really hard to reduce. I actually moved to reduce my cost of living even more. But I didn't have really like a lot of cash to fund the growth of a business and like spend on marketing and all of that. So MailChimp was pretty cheap. And, um, you know, I had like a little landing page and that was it. And did you go into the newsletter with this idea that oh, I'll build a kind of, I'll build content and a community and then I'll turn it into an app? Or did you have that sort of deep down in, in your brain or were you very much like, I'll just use this as an excuse to practice writing? I, I definitely wanted to write, but I did have the idea of the app and, you know, this was like in the early days, this was... I think meditation apps were still very early on. They had only been out for like a couple of years. And and I really felt like an app would be such a wonderful experience for someone going through a breakup because you really need this feeling of uh, accessibility. You need to be able to like listen to something any time of the day. Like it really helps if it's personalized. There were all these reasons why I felt like an app would be good. But I also couldn't afford to bring on an engineer. I think at the time I actually did try to find kind of like a technical co-founder to who, you know, had mobile expertise because I was doing web development and I just couldn't convince anyone to come work for free basically. And so I knew that I had to sort of develop the concept and build the community on my own. And then how do you have the funding to build the prototype? Yeah, so that was when I first decided to fundraise because I was sort of, you know, I was bootstrapping funding the, well, the newsletter wasn't much. Um, But then I did build the website. Again, I was doing the development myself. I had help from um, another kind of backend engineer who still works for us now, actually. There were just so many things that I wanted to do within the app and we were building a community within the app and we were getting so many questions and requests and we just couldn't build out what we wanted to. And the the vision for what I had was much greater than what I could fund myself. And so it was sort of like this, you know, red or blue pill moment <laughs> where you like go down one path. And I decided to join an incubator in LA. I joined Mucker Lab. And that gave me sort of the infrastructure to begin building the like full version of our the iOS app. When did you start to drop the paid work? Was that just as you entered the incubator? Yeah, I was living off of savings before. And I remember that I was really about to run out of money. And I remember 
the last pitch was a really hot day in Venice. I had moved to LA at that point from San Francisco. I remember just sweating profusely. Like I had tried to get dressed up for the meeting. And so I was like overdressed for a beach (laughs) walk. And I remember he was in flip-flops and shorts and a t-shirt. I really didn't, I, I couldn't tell if it went well or not because he was sort of had a poker face. And I remember getting in the car and just thinking like, okay, well, this was a good run. Like I, I did everything I could. I put everything that I could on the line. And if this doesn't work out, I'm going to have to like go back to consulting or, you know, take on paid work and then just figure out what I'm going to do next. And I mean, I wasn't that relaxed about it. I, I think I was crying while I was having these thoughts. But the next day he called me and and they accepted me, but it was really, I mean, down to the wire mm-hmm. at that moment. I probably wouldn't have gotten gone back into a full-time job, but I would have gone back to paid work. It's, it's an unusual incubator because there's no definite time period. I think I worked in their space for maybe a, maybe a year. And it was during that time that I hired my first iOS engineer and we really built out the, I would say like full expression of mend. And then did they put you in touch with investors? They did not. And that was one of the things that was so disappointing about about that experience. I think I was naive to think that when you join an incubator, it's just sort of like a smooth fundraising process. And it's not. I mean, they, I'm sure they definitely helped. I think there were some introductions that they made. Um, but no, I was actually approached by our first larger investor, our first kind of post incubator investor proactively because hit one of his associates had gone through a breakup and had found MEND and used MEND and thought that it was like a really great concept and was really interested in it. And so that's how that conversation started. But I will say, you know, to kind of fast forward a bit, because mm. um, we, we were very much on the venture track and there are certain things that were great about being a a venture backed company at the time, but we did like a full, we completely changed our direction and we decided to stop fundraising from VCs and we decided to focus on profitability. I want to make sure I share that part too, because I think that there are huge downsides to raising from VCs raising institutional capital. Mm. And it's definitely not the only way. You know, I don't know if if I did it all over again, if I would have done that. But at the time, it really felt like my only option. And I think that was just due to like a lack of perspective. How much did you end up raising? In all, we've probably raised a little over 2 million, which is pretty incredible given what we've been able to build. We've always been very lean. Our investors have always said that about us. Like, I think that's sort of my nature. I was like frugal growing up and I was frugal even when I was, you know, working. So we were always very lean. We, you know, didn't spend a ton of money. And so we were able to make things last. So we were, I I feel like we have really been able to do so much with the amount of money that we, that we raised. So you made a decision to move away from investment and focus on profitability. What does that actually mean in terms of how you changed kind of your day-to-day operations? To give a like context and I guess the story of when we decided to do that, 
it was, I don't know, maybe now two years ago, I can't remember. I was in a meeting sort of preparing, meeting with an investor, preparing to raise our next round. And I won't name the investor, but I remember getting a question around how many, what is your average sessions per day? And at the time ours was like six a day. On average, a mentor is, it has like six sessions a day. And to, you know, to us, that felt like a very healthy engagement number. And I remember um, their response was so off-putting and it felt so, I feel like the uh, little hairs on my arm <laughs> kind of stuck up because their their answer was basically something along the lines of, well, like, how do we get that? How do we get that up? How do we get even more engagement? And like, what are we going to do? Like, what changes are you going to make to the product to like double that or triple that? That was really a, a moment where we took a step back. I did all my fundraising alone before, but this was the first time where I was raising with my CTO in the, in the room with me. And we came away from that meeting and, and we were really reflecting on whether that was the direction that we wanted to move in. And, you know, we were seeing so many wellness apps and meditation apps go in that direction, certainly, and, you know, optimize for engagement at all costs you know, not really taking into account the mental health of the user. And we realized that it just didn't align with our values of kind of why I had started Mend in the first place. That's one story, but there are so many examples of that at the next level of fundraising. And that was what led me to ultimately decide to focus on profitability instead and fund our own growth. I'm interested whether that is a venture capital or sort of equity funding problem or why it's a attention economy problem because my in or sort of my layman view on it would be that you know companies that are venture backed need to grow very quickly and that's I guess why they're doubling down on sort of engagement rates I'm just curious if you think if you think it's to do with the fact that you were raising money or the fact that they were operating in this attention economy and sort of meant that in order to win in that attention economy they needed to you to grow in that way? Oh, it's definitely the business model for sure. Yeah, it's the, it's the business model and, you know, they need to make a certain return. And in order to make a return, there's sort of this idea that you have to, um, you, you know, you have to make money in a certain way or maybe not even make money, but just have a certain level of engagement. You know, I think in a lot of cases, companies are, are choosing to optimize for engagement even over monetizing. And, you know, we monetized from the very beginning. I remember that was always shocking to investors. <laughs> they were like, so you already, you're already having monthly subscriptions and you're already monetizing. And um, so, no, it's definitely, they're definitely doing their jobs. But I think it was just really a, a moment where we realized that we felt like we could do things differently. And And to be perfectly honest, I felt a big sense of responsibility for our user base because I had grown this user base so organically, really, really, it was such a personal passion project for me when I started it. And then to just kind of switch modes and say like, okay, well, we're now just going to build out features and change the app so that we can just keep them in the app as many hours a day and for as many sessions as possible. It just felt wrong. Do you escape that by focusing on profitability? Do you escape that as a problem? Somewhat. You don't have to 
kind of rearrange your whole product and rebuild your your product to optimize for engagement. Instead, you can focus on providing more value and and monetizing your user base. So for us, like one thing we realized pretty immediately after that round of meetings was we weren't charging enough. You know, our our VC money was definitely subsidizing the true cost of our product. And so we started to like really look at, you know, how much do we actually need to charge in order to make this a viable business? Because I mean, as I'm sure you know, so many businesses are not, you know, they're not making money because that's not their their focus. A lot of them are subsidizing their their marketing um, with, you know, huge budgets from investors. And it's not right or wrong. It's just a different way of, of doing things. So we decided to focus on really making our product one that people would pay for. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, like smoking secession products. So stuff like Nicorette or nicotine vaping and stuff like that. It's an interesting kind of conflict of interest in a way, which is like your product is trying to get you to stop being hooked on this thing, whether it's like, um, you know, breakup hormones and all the negativity that comes with that (laughs) or like nicotine. You assume obviously in, in, in all products that they have the best in mind for the customer but I guess it is a challenge that you have to be thinking about every day which is the way we make money is through people using something to solve a problem and that has a finite time right so like the lifetime value of a customer if you've got the customer's best interest at heart is hopefully quite low right right right. yeah is that something you think about or is actually relatively easy to navigate because there's enough breakups per lifetime that you don't actually need to worry too much about it yeah, I mean it's an interesting it's an interesting problem to solve as a as a business person and it's something we think about a lot, but it's like if you look at sort of our space, most apps don't have an exit strategy for their user. It's like the goal is to to keep you there, you know, as long as possible. And you know, I think in some cases continued support can be really valuable. Um in our case, it's like, you know, we don't want you to be heartbroken for for 5 years. So we really, you know, we offer subscriptions, um, they have different term lengths, but we ultimately hope that you feel better and that you don't have to use MEND. We, you know, we've expanded now into burnout. So there's some people who are now using us for burnout simultaneously or separately. But the idea is that you can come to us when you're going through something that's really difficult. We can support you when you really need it. And then you can move on with your life. And the reason that it works is because we are able to grow organically through word of mouth and people have a good experience and then they tell their friends. And also, like you said, there are so many breakups, so many divorces, so many people going through burnout. There's no lack of customer base on, on either front. Did you ever consider going into like relationships, so strengthening relationships? Yeah, we definitely have. And I mean, there have been so many areas that MEND could expand into. It's one of the reasons I chose the name MEND because I liked that it could apply in a lot of different ways. Um, But ultimately, we expanded into burnout for two reasons. One was because users were continuously asking us if we were expanding and if we were, if we could tackle career heartbreak. That was sort of the phrase that was used most often by our users. 
like whether they lost a job or they were really burned out by a job. And then frankly, the other reason was because I was really interested in, in burnout and it was something my team was really interested in. We could have gone into relationships more and gone deeper in that, in that way, but we also wanted to explore this area that was new for us and that was a challenge and interesting. And I think that's also important to consider because you spend so much time with it. <laughs> From your website, it says about burnout, it says I think people define it slightly differently, right? And it says yeah. there's educator burnout, physician burnout, activist burnout, spiritual burnout, the list goes on if you start looking. I actually wrote an article about... I uh, read your article. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on it because it's kind of, I think the traditional kind of perception of burnout is doing too much. But what I thought when I was reading that list that you wrote is actually the thing that all those things have in common is doing too much of one thing. And I was curious your thought on that. I think it makes so much sense. Um, I don't know if there's like research that backs that up, but basically the idea was one way of coping with burnout is having something else outside of what you're spending all of your time on, having something else to work on that can really ignite your, your intellectual curiosity. And it can really be, I think, a, a relief. And I do think that there is truth to that. And then I think you know, there are two sides to every coin. And I think that there are some people who are just by definition, they've gone past the point of physical, emotional exhaustion, they're negative about work, you know, all the symptoms of burnout, they're hitting and, and for those people, they really need to rest. So it just, it's sort of, I think it depends person by person. I think actually it prevents burnout, but I don't think it solves it once it's happened. Yeah. Would be my yeah, would yeah. be my instinct on it. And as I say, there is no science behind this thinking. But yeah. the reason I think it's interesting is because it's kind of like ancient sort of Buddhist Eastern teachings, this idea of like attachment. And I think, you know, if we're overly invested or overly attached in one particular thing, you know, there's so much expectation on that thing. There's so much dependency on that particular thing to kind of satisfy your needs. And I feel like that's both true for relationships and true for work. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, there's definitely something to it because I do think that when you are so invested in something, like you said, and you're spending all of your time on it, all of your energy, all of your brain power, all of your resources, you, you lose perspective. Like you're too close to the thing to see the thing. Beautiful benefits of having a, you know, an out of hours project or side project is that you benefit from that on both sides. You know, like I think the work that you do on either, either end supports the work that you do on the other end. And you do lose that when you go completely into one direction. You do lose that. One of the things that I was so impressed about Mend was you've got such a reassuring voice. And I think it's exactly the kind of thing that you want to hear, even though it's automated, you know, you know that when you're listening to it. But I think it's no doubt very reassuring for people listening to it. But with that, obviously, for you, I imagine comes a lot of extra emotional labor. And I'm just really interested to go into that a little bit and, and understand like the pros and the cons of being so deeply entwined with the product, you know, with your voice being the voice that you hear when you're navigating through the app and also with your story and you being kind of the front person, how difficult that is um, as you progress it and as you grow it. In the very beginning, it was purely accidental, the audio part of it. When we did start developing content for the app and I knew that I wanted it to be audio based. The question was, well, who's it going to be? And just happened that 
I was available and I was free. (laughs) You know, I was the person in the room who, who could do it. For many years, I've, I've heard now that people really love my voice, but that was a complete accident. And I didn't really have time to think about the implications of it, to be honest. One implication is, is what you said, which is that I am so deeply intertwined in the app. You know, we've tested other voices. They don't do well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that we haven't tried, but I do think, it, you know, it's this like continuity. You know, on the other side, it, it can be emotional labor because, you know, in the very beginning, I was sharing so much of my personal life. I was also a lot younger. So, you know, I started the newsletter seven years ago. I share a lot less of sort of the private kind of inner workings of my life now, although I do still write newsletters and, you know, I'm still honest. I just, I don't share as much. And that was necessary. I evolved over time where I have craved more privacy. I think as the world has gotten, you know, there's just so much content, so much information. Everyone is sharing so much about themselves and about everything all the time. I think I have kind of like gone in the other direction, actually. I read your, you had one other blog piece. I read them all. Um, <laughs> which was about uh, uh, your digital detox, yeah. um, which seems very linked to that. I'll read you this bit from it, actually. It says, well, once I started, you know, I think you were talking about your digital detox. And you said, but once I started, I just couldn't stop. I archived all my posts and deleted Instagram, a taste of liberation. I exported my data, permanently deleted my Facebook account, unsubscribed from everything except a few things I really cared about and created a new spam-free email account that I don't use for logins. With social media gone and email reduced, I then drastically cut out digital content and media from my life. Netflix, YouTube, most blogs and most podcasts. I'd love to hear a bit more about how that experience has impacted you and whether you'd recommend it. It's been about two years now, 2017 maybe, is when I permanently deleted Facebook, which at the time, it almost felt like something I couldn't do. I was burned out from just too much information and too much noise and content. And at the same time, I was also reading a lot um, Shoshana Zuboff and Cal Newport and all these people who were talking about the attention economy and digital minimalism, you know, I was just very reactive, it felt like. And I was also addicted to social media like everyone is. And I think it also coincided with this realization about MEND that I didn't want to build an app that contributed to that. I really wanted to build a useful tool, something that you can use, and then you can decide not to use. I mean, it sounds so cliche to say that, I mean, it completely transformed my life, completely. It transformed my business. We made so many changes. I mean, men went through a complete rebrand. We completely refocused what we were going to build and what our priorities were. We decided to focus on profitability. And then just in my personal life, I feel like I got my my life back. I met the person who then I ended up marrying and I've moved these like external changes, but internally, I'd say the biggest change is just that I felt like I, yeah, I felt this kind of sense of ease, I guess I would say, which I was missing. How does it impact your marketing strategy for men? Do you still market on those channels? Yeah, it's something we're, we're still trying to figure out. 
for sure. We haven't figured it out. We don't really post uh, like Instagram posts anymore. We do stories from time to time. Ultimately, one of the reasons we became less active on Instagram was it's expensive. And it also felt somewhat hypocritical because in our audio trainings, for instance, we were talking a lot about the importance of giving yourself space from social media during a breakup or during burnout, actually. And there, and there is real research that supports that advice. We ultimately decided to do this test where we would just like turn it off, focus on other things and see if it had a huge negative impact on the business and if we could survive without it. And we did. And I think the beauty of it is that, you know, we're not sort of beholden to their algorithm anymore, like so many businesses are. There's a major downside, which is that, you know, we aren't super active on it. So we're not building our follower count. The Instagram thing was definitely more of a more of a business decision in that it didn't it wasn't producing the amount of revenue that warranted the amount of time that was being spent on it. I mean, at one point, there was one person who was basically spending most of her time on that. So when we made the decision to switch from continuing to fundraise to fund our own growth, we cut back the team significantly. That was the most difficult part of the decision was the people element. It's having to let go of some people so that we could sustain the business and then, and then grow. And we want to continue to stay lean, but we definitely want to grow the team. Were there any moments in your sort of journey to where it is now where it sounds like you're very, very intentional and very kind of at peace with where it is and and kind of where you want it to go? Were there any points along the way where you were just a bit like, why am I doing this? This is crazy. Uh, All the time. Yeah. I have a very calm voice, even keeled, I would say, but by no means have I felt calm throughout the entire time. I think working on a side project or going at something like completely head on full time, either way, it's like you're taking a huge risk. I don't consider myself a really big risk taker. Like I don't skydive or, you know, any of these things that other people traditionally associate with risk-taking. But when I do look back, I've taken huge risks that most people wouldn't take, quitting a job and moving to different countries multiple times. And those moments are scary. They're just as scary, if not scarier, than jumping out of a plane, you know? I'm going to ask you one last question, which is when you compare yourself now, living in Paris, married, with a business that's growing throughout the pandemic, unlike lots of businesses, feeling sort of intentional about what you're doing with your time and your life, to that time when you were at Google, feeling burnt out, maybe a bit confused on which passions to follow, and having dealt with a really painful breakup. Are there any particular things that you're like, oh, I'm really proud that I've done that particular thing? Yeah, it's hard to believe almost. I think Well, my move to Paris was unexpected. It was unexpected to meet my husband and I'm a stepmom now. And the way that men has evolved has been unexpected. You know, I definitely wasn't thinking about going back to kind of focusing on profitability and being more lean and growing sustainably. I also wouldn't have expected that we expanded into burnout. And so I guess like what I take away from that is you just really never know 
how things are going to end up and life surprises you over and over again. I remember this piece of advice that my professor gave me, which I actually learned later. I think it's from Steve Jobs or like Rumi or something. (laughs) The advice is that take a step and the path will appear. And I think that that is so true. And that has been really true for me. So I didn't really have like a destination in mind when I left Google. There were all these things I was interested in. And when I started MEND as a newsletter, I definitely didn't have the destination in mind. Like I didn't have like an exit strategy and like a business plan for better or worse. Who knows? But that is definitely one thing that I have noticed is that I've I have just been able to move forward and take steps and and go down the path and then things do unfold. I love that. I love how it's Steve Jobs or Rumi. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I thought it was my professor for years, but that would be my advice to like whoever is listening. I wish this podcast had been around when I was having ideas of, of MEND because I think it would have been so helpful and you know, the stories that were sort of out there were these like overnight success type stories, which of course don't really exist. It's like, usually it takes like seven or eight years or something. If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you, there is something in you that you're interested in, whether it's like a really small kernel of an idea or it's more developed. And I think it can be really scary if it's not fully formed and you're not sure how it will develop, but you just have to take a step towards something. You just have to take action. Um, And I think being decisive and taking the risk and like putting yourself out there opens up the world to you and opportunities arise out of that. And I've always felt that to be the case, which is why that advice is something that I always go back to. It's like you just have to take a step and the, the path will appear. 